Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with co-host Ronnie Nathan. Hey. Hiya. Hi, Dad. (laughs) And we're co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew. By the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars on iTunes with, uh, you know, with some comments or Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us in the rankings and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And please welcome our guest, Paige Pendleton. Paige is an author of children and adult fiction, and she doesn't want me to say too much about it because she uh, she's very humble about her accomplishments. But they're they're vast and great in the in as an author. Can I can I mention the (laughs) can I mention one or two of the books? Absolutely. Oh, terrific. Yeah. The Black Ledge series, The Keeper of the Rune Stone, The Keeper of the Alabaster Chalice and Reginald the Railway Rat. Um, <laughs> so I won't, I won't belabor the point, but she's, she's really a prolific, wonderful author. Paige also sits on the main animal science committee and with an educational background in biology, microbiology has advised on infectious disease control. And with the COVID-19 outbreak has been working with businesses, schools, and other organizations advising on infectious disease prevention full-time all, all over the state of Maine. That's quite a that's quite a contribution, Paige. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. Are you, are you doing all right? How's how's uh, how are you? How, how are you getting through all this? Oh well, this is I, very easy. Um, a lot of a lot of um, what I'm doing is before the public actually comes in with showing anybody who has a space, be it a, a business owner or a school working with employers for safe office environments. Um, it's it's evolved since yeah. it started, um, but it's, it's very rewarding work knowing perhaps you can give somebody some tools to stay a little safer and it's an interest of mine. So it's fun. Yeah. It's important, important work, keeping each other healthy. Uh, well, I wanted to explore a little bit about your your background and, and your formative years. Uh, <laughs> if you were to write the memoir of your childhood, I was trying to think of a title. How does it sound? Jingles, Sailboats, and the Mob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some pasta. And, and some, some pasta. A lot of pasta. That's great. So w- w- you grew up in Rhode Island, you said? Yeah. I, I was born in Rhode Island. My... um. Most of my parents' families are from the South Shore of Massachusetts. He, my father attended college in, at Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, and began his career at um, Brown and Sharp Manufacturing Company. He also taught uh, sociology evenings at University of Rhode Island, and they lived right on Campus Avenue when I was born. 
but we moved when I was around seven to Massachusetts, just over the line. So our lives were really still in Rhode Island for all intents and purposes, but our home was in Massachusetts. Yeah. And your mom, you followed your, in your mom's footsteps in a way in terms of what you studied and even what you're doing now. Isn't, isn't that right? Well, I did. I, I always, um, you know, I was really a lucky kid and we had large animals. We, our home was a, a beautiful old historic farm. So I was active in 4-H and having large animals did a lot of the veterinary veterinary care, you know, used to give vaccines. And I learned a lot about that. And I was always proficient at it. Um, I was interested in what my mother did as a nurse. She was an ER nurse. And, you know, I believe kids who grow up in households with parents who are either doctors or nurses um, have an advantage on things. We also had animals. So I was comfortable with the medical world. I heard a lot about it. Um, and I'd done some actual medical care on our animals growing up. And I knew that was a career I'd be interested in. However, I also knew I, I probably didn't want to be a nurse. And I wasn't sure I was up for medical school. Um, and dentistry appealed to me for some pragmatic reasons, mostly as it was probably easier time-wise also raising a family, which I planned to do one day. So it just sort of evolved. And I, I love dentistry. Right. You, you mentioned 4-H and uh, it, it sounds like one or both of your girls are involved in 4-H. I never really knew that much about it. I wonder if you got your sense of civic engagement and civil discourse to some degree from your involvement with 4-H. Uh, probably to some degree I did. I think I got that a little bit more from my parents, but but what 4-H I think gives youths are tools to present themselves in whatever they're interested in. What are the 4-Hs? I always wondered about that. Your head, your heart, your hands, and your health. Your head, you pledge your head for clearer thinking, your heart for greater loyalty, your hands for greater service, and your health for better living for your club, your community, your country, and your world. That's the, the, four, the 4-H pledge. And it is a service organization, but it's great in that youth can explore what, whatever they want to, and there's opportunities for development and community service in, in whatever it is they're interested in. There's a club or activities or a program for everything. Um, and you do projects. So you learn about record keeping and, and you have educational opportunities and you, there are competitions involved with that. So you can learn how to public speak and present yourself and your ideas and your projects or what have you. And it's just a wonderful organization. So you, you mentioned uh, you studied biology, microbiology, and started a career in dentistry. At what point did you transition to writing and why? 
I, oh gosh, I I loved dental hygiene. I really did because dental hygiene in some ways is an awful lot like farming. You get to do a little bit of everything. It's more autonomous than, than other aspects of healthcare. And I absolutely loved it. But unfortunately I had, was diagnosed with a benign brain tumor And one of the symptoms was neuropathy and my hands and my, my lower extremities, I had problems with numbness. So I really couldn't continue to practice safely. (laughs) I just, I just imagined the scene where you're working in someone's mouth and they're like, this is hurting. This is hurting. And you say, don't worry. I don't feel a thing. (laughs) I don't feel a thing. And of course, dental hygiene is all tactile sensitivity. Um, Yeah. So I really couldn't continue to practice clinically. And I, I, I felt really badly about that because I really did love what I did every day. I I loved my patients. Um, So I suppose I actually might've even been a little depressed. I didn't, really think about it at the time. It was just kind of an adjustment, but all of a sudden why I started writing, I've, well, I've always kind of written, but nothing, nothing like a book, but all of a sudden, actually um, a character kind of stomped into my head one day and just demanded, I get the story down. Oh. And it sounds kind of silly, but it's really that simple. And I just actually started typing as they told the story. And then, you know, it was a, it was a, the Blackledge series, that was that was what I started with, um, is is fantasy with some history incorporated. But it really, the character is the one who just told me the story and I got it down. And then I spent a few years writing it properly, because as you you asked, you know, how did you learn to write? Well, right. The there's a difference even between I've always been a strong writer, but there's a difference between writing a story and the first part is getting it all down. And then the second part's a little bit like walking on stage completely naked. Um, You sort of have to learn by fire. And the way you do that is you give it to people who are writers and sort of bare your soul and let them open a vein and let them eviscerate you a bit and teach you. That's hard because it's your soul that's that's being critiqued in a way. You're, oh, you're, and it's it, it can you know, especially at first, boy, it's humiliating. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you just but you got it. That's how that's how you do it. I was curious about that because it's it's you know we many of us who know how to read and write just assume oh I can write, but you know it's it's a it's not just a skill; it's an art that that takes and a craft that takes honing. Um, so, well, it is. And, and I honestly, I'm, there's all different kinds of writing. You know, you, what you really want to hope to do is have somebody turn and keep, continue to turn the page. And, and there's all kinds of reasons people do that. Either they want to learn or they're entertained. And, and that's something you have to constantly work on. Um, I was very, very fortunate. I had two people who were both brutally honest and very kind and tender. And that's um, Terry McKenzie, Ronnie and Harvey Ardman. Um, and they're both brilliant they're writers. Friends. Yeah. And they each in different ways really taught me so much. I don't know if they'd want to be publicly associated with that, but, <laughs> but, um, and, and other people I have, I have a couple of really good editors 
That's great. Yeah. That's really terrific. It, you, you and Terry are, have a lot of similarities just in terms of your intelligence and graciousness in my encounters with both of you. Um, but, but it, it would be fair to say that you come from very different points of view politically. You know, it's funny. We actually, Terry and I are very funny. We, we look at the, we often assess things very similarly. I think we're a lot alike. I'd like to think we're a lot alike. I think the world of Terry on so many levels, she's brilliant, but she's a really wonderful, real person. We tend to, and I think this is, you can take this larger in America. We tend to have different ideas for solutions mm. um, to what we're assessing. But Terry, and I agree on so much. Yeah. You know, when I, when I read your, um, how you described yourself politically, and we'll get to that in a second, I, I thought, wow, I, I would identify very much the same way, but it strikes at a, a point that I've thought for a long time that I would much rather align with someone who arrives at whatever conclusions they do through a, a thoughtful, ethical process, even if they arrive at a different conclusion than I might, as opposed to someone who has a chaotic, malicious way of going about things and then just happens to arrive at, at some conclusion that I might agree with. I, I don't know yeah. if that's making sense, but. No, it absolutely makes sense. If I, I don't have to agree with everybody. If I feel like they gave it consideration and, and truthfully, I don't even really care about their thought process because everyone is different. If, if they have sincerely considered it, I don't have to agree with it. I, I, I may offer something that I don't think they have considered. Yeah. And that could be a point of view or a fact, but yeah, I, I really don't think Americans are as far apart as it seems on social media. I kind of disagree. To me, there are three things in terms of productive interactions with people. One is to have a concern for objective facts that we can agree on a certain basic understanding of reality. Two, that there's a moral ethical value system behind whatever conclusions you come to, you know, and three, that you listen. And I think those three aspects have been deteriorating in American political culture for the last 40 years. Oh, I, I would agree with that. I, I don't necessarily have the same what has to be on the table for negotiation, if you will, that you do, but I, I don't disagree with you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the listening part of it. Yeah. That's what I would agree with Corey is the listening. I, I would like people to use the same standard of judgment for everybody, whether it's Trump, Biden, Clinton, whoever, Use the same standards of how you evaluate them morally, ethically, intellectually, uh, pragmatically. Don't use double standards. I, I, that's hard, though. That's that's yeah, hard because different subjective. people 
different people elicit different reactions. The way we would view any any individual, um, we we'd like to think that we're perfectly rational all the time, but we still have this like animal part of our brain that has these chemical reactions to uh, to certain people. So before, so we're going to get into this, but before we did that, I wanted to ask you sort of a big question, Paige. What's that? How would you identify yourself? Uh, not, not just one dimensionally, but religiously, politically, vocationally, personally, ethnically, because there's, you know, as I learned more about you in, in preparing for this, uh, there are so many different ingredients that, that make up who you are. And that, that, that's kind of the point. It's never just one thing. So what would you say your your main ingredients? How would you identify yourself? Well, you know, it was, it was funny. I was sort of um, chuckling at that question because as far as identifying religiously or politically, vocationally is a little bit different. That's a little bit more practical. Um, ethnically, personally, I really don't identify by any one thing. I consider myself unaffiliated religiously, politically, free agent, what have you. Um, I, I tend to define myself more by the person I strive to be. Mm. And I have not yet found any one group, if you will, either religion or politically, that I tend to take the a la carte approach at all of those things and pick and choose what I like from them. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I tend to vote Republican, you know, probably now 95% of the time. And that has more to do with the fact that goes to my belief in the Constitution and, and the size and role of government. And I feel like Republicans, by and large, by virtue of their ideology and, and platform of smaller government, are more self-correcting. There's a lot of social issues I would probably align with Democrats on, but I don't always think their ideas about how to achieve a goal I may share are the best way to do it. Does that answer your question a little bit? It sort of does. I mean, you, you sort of made my point that we... I've noticed sociologically, we have a tendency to identify someone by this one thing that we might know. We might know that this person voted for Trump or this person voted for Biden. And that's all we need to know. We now have their identity. And so, some guys, you know, fly that flag quite literally. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's all consuming. I'm going to fly my Trump flag high, you know. And But most of us are too complex to identify as, as any one thing, e even you know, even in these various categories I threw out religiously, personally, ethnically, what have you. So you sort of answered, you sort of made my point for me. I wanted to ask you about one thing you've, you've said, I forget if it was uh, not in this conversation yet, but um, I, I forget where I read it, but you've, you've said you're a constitutional conservative. H how would you define constitutional conservative? Um, pretty literally, I love the Constitution. I, it starts with the Declaration of Independence. And I mean, to the point where I, it almost um, takes on maybe more of a little bit of a, a religiosity 
that some other people have, but I, I life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And mm. how is that? It, it's defined in the constitution with five points, okay. if you will. And I, I very literally that defines the role of government for me and how it's supposed to help and support American citizens' lives. So that that would make sense because you you also said that you're libertarian leaning. Yeah, I really am. Although libertarians tend to be very cutthroat about government, I do firmly believe we have an obligation to care for society's most vulnerable. Um, And we need social programs. I worked, I always worked in public health and in practices that accepted Medicaid. And I'm well aware, in fact, more so than many people, because the people who need the most help, you often don't see in the general public. They're literally housebound, severely physically or mentally incapacitated, and they don't get enough help. I feel like the programs are not effective and efficient. It's not that I don't support the programs, but I often don't support the way they're run and operated because I think it could be better. And the bureaucracy, the role of government, they're exploited. Sometimes it's corruption. I think our government could be sharper and better honed. Curious if, uh, so given that, I could see where one might look at Trump somebody like Trump from afar and say, businessman, perhaps he can bring a new way of doing government programs. Take, take that business acumen. I, I would argue with his business acumen and business successes, but that's, that's for another conversation. So how would you, how would you, how did you see someone like uh, Mike Bloomberg's candidacy? I didn't pay too much attention with it because uh, to it, because <sighs> I sort of didn't pay attention to the Democratic primaries. Yeah. I'm not a Democrat. I don't have any input. It's sort of up to Democrats to choose who their candidate will be. It's not really my business, if you will. You spent a lot of time making fun of Joe Biden over the last two years, though, Paige. Well, Joe Biden, though, has been around for 47 years. Bloomberg really hasn't. I mean, he is a New York, but it's not part of my sphere. Biden... Um, there's a lot there with Biden and I've never been a Biden supporter. Trump, I will give you an example of, I'm not entirely certain there are some things about Trump's administration that I, I'm not sure I support yet in terms of real executive actions. But I will say this, and this is also from my standpoint as a healthcare professional. He took a lot of criticism for how he handled the response to COVID-19. Because of what I do, I watched every briefing every day in real time. And I have to say, I thought his response was strong, decisive, powerful, and correct. And when it was a mistake, they acknowledged that and changed course very quickly. The one thing that I was absolutely profoundly impressed with 
was how he united the public and private sector to collaborate on certain things. You know, um, Apple's certainly not a supporter of Trump. He got them in and they were working with the team on accumulating data. It, it was it was really impressive and he didn't get the credit he deserved for that. I liked all the people he put in. He, interestingly enough, he skipped over a lot of top people, stay at the CDC, and he assembled his own team. And from my perspective, I thought he did a really good job. And I found the criticisms, the majority of them, not all, but frankly, from the media, disingenuous. And, and a lot of the time, I suspected that they hadn't even bothered to watch the briefing. Um, they would take a soundbite and run with it that actually just wasn't even accurate and certainly not fair. It takes a lot of work to cut through the rhetoric and the narratives in order to look at the actual actions uh, since basically January. Uh, but w- once you do that, it's uh, there, there are still some things that have me, at, and this is not my field, but even as early as January, at least February, I thought, wow, the testing just seems to be the most obvious uh, action to take to really ramp up testing. But it took it took well into April to, to ramp that up. So well, that, that- know, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, there were actual logistic reasons and there were some problems with the tests. There's also another problem with testing that's as old as public health. You have it's a constant debate in public health as to testing or not testing. And now I I really like both Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. Testing is always a debate. I'm on team test. I would test every person repeatedly as needed. Um, There's a lot of public health officials who don't place any value in that. And that's just the way it is. Can I jump in for a second? Yeah. You said you like Fauci and Burke. I do. And you you also said that you really think Trump had a strong uh, uh, response to the pandemic. That seems to fly in the face of the public statements that Fauci and Burke have made. So how do you account for this difference between your evaluation of the Trump approach and their evaluation of the Trump approach? I, I you'd have to give me a specific statement, Ronnie. I've- well, mask wearing. What? You know, I mean, to, look, just like Corey, this is not my field. Um, I'm certainly to the left of Corey and even more to the left of you politically. Um, so let's factor that prejudice into the mix. But it seemed to me that um, the president of the United States should have presented a much stronger role model for uh, mask wearing, for taking the pandemic seriously, at least in the way he projected it publicly. It seemed to me that what, what Trump did was his priority was politics, the political ramifications of the stand he was taking, as opposed to public health. Well, I can understand why you would think that. Um, If you remember, though, 
Dr. Fauci didn't recommend masks either at first. At first. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay. Um, Masks are only effective if they're proper masks and properly used and handled. And that does actually require training. Cloth face masks, most of us in the medical profession feel are, they're certainly not going to protect the wearer. They may protect other people to some extent, but but here's the problem with masks is they can actually increase risk of exposure. If a person has a false sense of security because either they or other people are wearing masks, they may get too close. Um, They may sacrifice other mitigation measures like social distancing and hand washing. I was both, the dark humor was, was there, but I was also horrified I remembered when, you know, cloth masks became more and more, there was that initial struggle going on in Target, you know, then of course all the the cloth mask imports from China arrived and Target had um, a stand with cloth masks on them. And then they put a mirror on the display so people could stand there and try on the masks. you know, you have saying, to be yes. you have to be careful. Masks, masks can be a really good tool, but they shouldn't. You know, you can have a mask on, but if you don't have protective eyewear on, I mean, even a proper mask. Yeah, you're it, it is hard to. So, yeah, there's nuances to it. And Fauci, Fauci would still say that if you could ask him, I'm quite certain I I think most people just thought, you know, it's too complicated to get into with most people and you can just tell people to wear a mask and and it doesn't really cause any harm. I have concerns that, in fact, it can cause harm if it imbues a false sense of security. But, you know, what What, what were some of the other actions Trump took that you thought he got right in the handling of the pandemic? Well, I, I really think appointing Pence and that team. Another um, noteworthy thing that he did, and, and this was a fine line, but I thought they overall, they walked it very well. When I say Trump, I, I, I mean the whole team. The administration, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and that was one thing I felt badly about. I thought the team didn't get the credit they should because people love to hate Trump. But one thing that I thought they walked a fine line, but did it quite well, was allowing states to take charge and make decisions while also supporting. I thought that was quite well done, really. Um, It didn't always, there were problems, but all in all, I thought they walked that line quite well. Let me be devil's advocate here. Um, I disagree. I thought you might, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, to the extent that, look, I believe in federalism and, and I believe in, in the best place to make granular decisions is locally. But what Trump did was demonize Democrats and 
pressure Republicans to not implement strong policies. Had he had he supported every governor in whatever they were doing, that would be one thing. But Trump consistently made this pandemic and the response to it into a political issue to the extent of making fun of people at news conferences who are wearing masks, you know, to the extent of demonizing Democratic run cities. I think later, certainly once the, the campaign started properly, I think that's true. I didn't really see much evidence of that um, when they were having the daily press briefings. I actually thought everyone was working together quite well. The media didn't cover that. That's what I that's what irritated me a little bit. I think sometimes you have to remember, Ronnie, that the media wants headlines and sometimes they create ones that weren't actually in existence. Yeah, but but Trump himself played into that. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, a a strong, morally, ethically based president is able to bend the curve on the media. I am not sure that's true. I'm not sure you appreciate um, from how far behind every single Republican comes with the media in general. Um, Trump has his own style and at times it works and at times it doesn't. But honestly, I'm, I'm not sure the media would have given him a bit of credit that they didn't have to. And at times didn't exploit things that they shouldn't have. Got a whole network that was on his side for a very long time with the highest news ratings in America. Give me a little bit more on that. Well, I don't watch Fox News, but well, then, you know, I do watch PBS and I think PBS gave Trump a lot of credit for whatever positives. um, Sometimes they do, but sometimes they just, you know, meet the media. It's sort of like Instagram and selfies. If if it didn't if it doesn't get covered or there isn't a photo or there wasn't a post, it didn't happen. That's true. And. That happens in the media. I, I now some things. What is something that Trump has done, Ronnie, that you approve of? I love his policy with Israel. I mean, I know it has nothing to do with public health, but okay. Uh, okay, so let's take that. He's the strongest president who supported Israel in my lifetime, and I think the results have been much more positive than I ever would have predicted. So let me ask you this, just on that surface of that. Do you think that necessarily gets the credit or the coverage that it warrants? I don't. Well, that, that's that's a big question, it, because that's a great it's a great question. I think among the Jewish community, it certainly does. Yeah, it does. Especially the religious. Uh, maybe no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, specifically from the media. Well, that's see, that's a gosh, I, we could do a whole series on, on this, but the media, we are all responsible. You should appreciate this as a, a libertarian leaning. We're all responsible for our own consumption. We're all responsible for how we dis, where we consume our media and how we discern the media that we're consuming. You know, so if I'm only watching Ben Shapiro, 
but Shapiro, Shapiro, if that's my, or, 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 or the daily show. Yeah. Um, and that's my main source, if not only source of, of where I'm getting the news, that's on me. You know what I mean? But if I can read the Washington post and the Washington times, or even within the post, if I'm just reading, um, I don't know any of the, well, let's see, Je- Jennifer Rubin, uh, was a conservative, but now she's such a, um, anti-Trump person, um, that she, she appears to be so, so, uh, skewed to one side. Whereas I can read Hewitt's columns. I can read George Will's columns. I can read Gerson's columns and get someone who's a classical conservative or actually, you know, bigger sense, classical liberal, even within the Washington post. Uh, so it's on me to make sure that I'm consuming news and opinion from a wide array of sources and then to digest that uh, individually and intelligently. There's not, there's another nuance, you know, you ask the question, did Trump get enough credit in the media? Do they cover it enough, uh, you know, in terms of his policies in the Middle East? My response would be no, but he certainly got this, the same level of coverage, credit, discredit, whatever, as every other president's ever gotten with their Middle East policies. It's a small piece of the political consciousness in America. I think you could you know, have that complaint about any politician on any issue with the media. OK, also- but can I stop you there for a minute? Sure. Has any other politician in recent history had the achievements in the Middle East that Trump has? I mean, some of these. And Jimmy Carter did. Yeah. Yeah, but that's Ronnie, that's recent history for us, but it isn't for 20 year olds. I mean, <laughs> it's current events for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, everything's relative. <laughs> um, I, I, he's had huge achievements moving towards more peace in the Middle East. And I don't think. I mean, actually, foreign policy didn't even really come up in the debate. So it might have gotten a pass, you know, waved at it as it drove by. But that was just an example of how perhaps something isn't really covered. And I would agree with your point about responsibility for our own consumption of information. Yeah, that's in a perfect world. People are busy and there's a reason headlines are used so much. Yeah. Let's pursue this Mideast thing for a minute. On a certain level, I could be a single or a double issue voter. And Israel is like really high on my priority list as an American observant Jew. Yeah. Having said that, if the person who is strong for Israel is also a pathological liar, (laughs) sows division and hatred, and gets joy from humiliating other people. There's really nothing else to talk about. Well, I'm not. His, I'm not. I don't sure care what his are... policy is on Israel or public health or anything else. There's nothing else to talk about. I'm not. I'm not sure your assessment's entirely fair or accurate. Um, I don't think he enjoys ridiculing. I think. I think he's angry at Democrats. No, 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 no. You know, Democrats, the impeachment started before he was inaugurated. You know, there's a lot of Democrats who wouldn't didn't even make an attempt. They 
didn't go to the inauguration. I mean, it, it really comes from both sides, Ronnie, and I don't think you can ignore that with any intellectual integrity. I, I, I agree with you, but calling John McCain a loser and Marco Rubio, little Marco, and Ted Cruz's father, uh, complicit in JFK's assassination, that happened long before the Democrats uh, became a target for his uh, ire. So, I mean, that's part of his personality. Ignoring the fact that it's part of his personality is also um, a shortcoming. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really quite see it that way. I'm more inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt because I do think in many ways he's been in the position of reacting um, yeah. to what was coming at him. Um, and that's so John McCain and Marco Rubio. Well, John McCain, I, I've got to tell you, I, I kind of angry at John McCain. He, I feel like he intentionally undermined Trump on say, he didn't like Trump. A lot of Republicans for whatever reason, don't like Trump. And I feel like John McCain was actually working against him. He wasn't just well, I'm not going to support this. He was trying to undermine him. And I voted for McCain, but McCain's kind of, there are reasons I'm not a Democrat and people like John McCain and, um, oh, who's my favorite? Rick Santorum are reasons I'm not a Republican either. Democrats, I think, are, I think Democrats are better at sticking together even when there's conflict behind the scenes than Republicans are. That's um, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. For I, whatever I, reason, that's another probably whole discussion. But I, I feel like if John McCain wasn't going to help, he also didn't have to undermine him. So th this leads to a, a, a big observation I've made in our encounters. I've seen you defend conservatives generally and even Donald Trump specifically. But most of the time, your defense, especially of someone like Trump, and it's it's here in this conversation, too, seems like more of a reaction to what you see as a massive influence of the far left and the potential danger of the direction of the country if the far if the left has its way. I Is that a fair? I think that's very fair. Um, thank you. <laughs> I do. I feel very strongly about that. Probably the biggest concern I have is I see a great disparity in the freedom of expression on both sides. And I get a little frustrated because I, I really don't think Democrats appreciate how much freedom of expression they enjoy and how I, ha I, I post politics on my wall all the time. I, I find it obnoxious myself, frankly. Um, I <laughs> I have a lot of people <laughs> inbox me. The reason I do it is because so many people who agree with me, they'll send me inboxes saying, oh my gosh, I agree with you so much, but I could never say that. Either they own businesses, the, the whole cancel culture. And there seems to be, to me, a lack of people being able to accept the fact that someone doesn't agree with them and move on. And I think it's a real problem and it's getting worse. So you, I, I, I do think I'm concerned about, about that, Corey, you're absolutely right. 
a lot of times it's not really that I'm defending Trump, but frankly, I think the criticisms aren't either accurate or fair. There are things I would criticize Trump on, but they never come up. I, 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 you know, sometimes the things people write or say, and I know Mike has commented on this. It's like, oh God, don't make me defend him, but but somebody has to, because no one is. Um, right. I think we need to say that Mike is a fellow on our political um, in our political group, the place where you and I met, Paige. Yeah. Yes. Point counterpoint. So I'll say this: if the Democratic National Convention consisted of AOC and Bernie and and folks of of that ilk. Um, I would never be able to bring myself to support whoever was representing that um, yeah. coalition. But the fact is that AOC got less than 30 seconds, yet Colin Powell, Meg Whitman, Christine Todd Whitman, John Kasich. Kasich. All, yeah, they all got, and they're Republicans. They all got individually, you know, several minutes, let alone uh, the 30 seconds that AOC got. Now, Having her under that big tent concerns me. Not that I think she's a terrible person, but I think she has terrible ideas of um, yeah. how to solve whatever problems uh, are being discussed at the moment. Um, and, and her math is is not very good. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, but the fact that I'm in a tent with folks like that, with folks like Meg Whitman, who I voted for for governor here in California, you know, or Christine Todd Whitman who was in Bush's cabinet and was governor of New Jersey prior to that, like real, you know, Republicans with real cred. Well, uh, I don't know if they're identifying fully as cons- Republicans now, but real conservatives, fiscal, true fiscal conservatives. See, so I'd rather that, be that, in that tent than the tent, the, the other convention. It was all Trump, all Trump all the time. It's like, it was like a high school, ra- it was like a high school, uh, you know, rally before the football game. See, th- I agree with you, Paige. I agree that freedom of speech is being threatened. I agree with you that because the liberal elite, and I'll say this and I'm part of it, controls the uh, academia nowadays, that intolerance for alternative speech, the left is much more guilty of that. On the other hand, the issue that Corey just raised demonstrates very clearly that it's not a simple issue. Well, here's the here's the deal. Extremists on both sides are the ones that tend to suck up the oxygen in the room. So unfortunately, you know, the people, the people and and the most reasonable, but they're usually busy working on real solutions. (laughs) Right. So they actually don't have time to stand in front of the cameras. See, the other side of it, that Trump that Trump exploits constantly is that people like you and me are nice and polite. So somebody who's willing to break all the boundaries of civility has an advantage. Well, in all fairness, though, Ronnie, I would say most of the politicians that are in leadership positions, that's true. I notice it with Schumer and Pelosi. They're not exactly champions of unity, it, I think the most vocal in on both sides, that tends to be a common denominator. Um, on your side, it's Trump. Yeah, there's and one. He's the president. Well, 
And, and perhaps that's why I do know among Republicans, there has been some frustration that they, and for the last 30 years, that they cave. Um, the only ones for, for a significant period of time they didn't cave to were the religious right. And I think there's a lot of center-right people who are just like me, who don't, don't really have much use for either of the extremes. And are, are you know, Trump is one in the Republicans, um, there may be some other minor characters, but but let, let's be fair. The kind of screaming politics began with Gingrich and uh, Rush Limbaugh, at least in my estimation. Yeah, see, I really like Newt Gingrich. And the Democrats are about ten years behind the Republicans. We'll not we, but they are learning their lessons from the from, from Limbaugh, and it's taken them a while to catch up. Maybe I, I think they're holding their own. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really feeling like they're being victimized here. They do hold their own. You know, you're right. They do have um, a controlling interest in academia, but also media and pop culture. And back to the original question about freedom of speech is one thing I worry about. And honestly, I, I get particularly angry at liberals because I feel right. betrayed. They used to be champions of peace and love, acceptance and freedom of expression. And I want to know where that went. It's still their page, but the people, the people you call liberals are not liberals. They're left-wing fascists. Um, you know, I, I used to call myself um, a proud, unapologetic liberal when liberal meant her, you know, Hubert Humphrey. Okay, now, I'm looking for the liberals, Ronnie. I'm not calling the progressives liberals. I consider them a different. I mean, I'm looking for the liberals that you're talking about, and I don't see as many of them. Uh, look on your screen. I'm right here. <laughs> I remember well, in junior high school, I read um, one of Thoreau's, Henry David Thoreau's essays. Um, I, I think the one that started, um, that government is best, which governs least. Yes. Um, I, the w Walden was that Walden, um, yeah. and, and that really, especially at that age, it was a you know formative stage of my life, formative uh, thinking, and there were times early in my in, in my young adult life where I felt that the Democratic Party represented that ethos more, but certainly over the last 10, 15 years, I'm not so sure. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I would agree with you. I, I, that I do. I, I have some, you know, it's funny. You people tend to get the most displeased when their expectations aren't met. And uh, Ronnie, I'll be honest with you. I used to count on liberals upholding that fight and they don't anymore. And, and I'm angry about it because I feel like they're letting all of us down. Um, there are certain things I'm, I'm pro-choice, but I really value. I'm not. Oh, that's I, well, you know, <laughs> but you used to be, didn't you? Before I became religious. Yes. Now having invested myself more in religion, 
and becoming more observant, um, I'm sort of like half pro-choice, half pro-life. I think there should be no abortions after week 20 unless the mother's life is endangered. Okay, well then, I mean, you do support choice though then. You're really Um, very similar to me. Before week twenty, before week twenty, I think the woman has absolute should have absolute control of her body. But after week twenty, e- even in cases of rape and incest, is I, I I would oppose an abortion unless the mother's life was in danger. I I would call that being pro-choice. I'm not sure pro-choice has to be unlimited choices. I I'll define how far that choice goes. Um, up until a certain point. So I consider myself pro-choice, but as I said, it's not pro-unlimited choice. What I was going to say, though, is as far as people who fight on the life side, I may not agree with them, but I think they, I appreciate their existence, and I think they bring a valuable viewpoint to the table for all of us to consider. Me too. So, and I tend to feel that way about everything back to why I'm, I get a little bit angrier at the left for letting down the protections on free speech and expression um, for that reason. How has freedom of speech been limited? I, 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 I don't see it. I, I, I'm sure you don't, but um, a couple weeks ago, the New York piece put a, the New York Post put out a piece about Hunter Biden's laptop. Twitter and Facebook were removing them flat out. Now this was they were reporting on something that frankly had more facts supporting what they were reporting on than some of the anonymous sources from the New York Times. Twitter and Facebook were removing the article and uh, even shut down accounts of anyone who shared it. Me on Twitter was one of those people. So Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms up until fairly recently did in fact operate as platforms. They had some general rules about violence and so forth, but for all intents and purposes, they were platforms and they enjoyed platform protection. They have taken on more of a role as a publisher, controlling content, but they're still enjoying platform protections, meaning they, they aren't being held accountable, can't be held accountable because of these protections. That limits people's speech. They had, they had no business to remove that article. It wasn't Russian disinformation. I don't know what will happen with that, but that was reporting they had no business censoring that content. None. So I have a, I have a question because I, I've never been on Twitter. And um, this is something that I'm not educated about. Oh, Twitter's fun for me. But, but I have a question. <laughs> is it possible that Twitter and Facebook was screening out these posts because of the way they were introduced by the people who put them up? Would nope. they just screen they just, out anything that the New York Post put up? They did, and they shut down the New York Post. They've, well, they've done this with other things, but that was probably the most egregious um, because you can argue about disinformation. The truth is, if you're going to be a platform, I don't think you 
Twitter and Facebook are not arbiters of truth in our society. They're social media platforms. And, or if they want to be publishers and control content, they should assume the risk of that as well. Uh, uh, just, just, just for your, for your information, I'm the arbiter of truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, don't, but don't you think we all have that right? I don't, yes. I don't need Twitter or Facebook or anyone else deciding what I want to consider and contemplate. But if the article is put up with an introduction that says something that's clearly not true, I, 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 and, 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 and slanderous, I can um, understand the reluctance to put that up without any kind of warning that this is not, you know. That's there. They need to get back in their lane. That's not their place to do. If someone is slandered, we have avenues of address for that but they're not very good avenues well then that's something to be worked on but i don't i don't agree with censorship by tech giants that's a, you you asked for an example of censorship you don't no, see a good it. example that was a good example and i agree with you to, to i would say like i'm, I'm with you 75 percent on this one so in, in tying this all together Corey asked how i learned to write um, and he asked a question that maybe we'll get to later. One of the ways I learned to write was reading. Mm. Um, and one of one of the concerns going forward that I have about our society, that factors into it. And, and social media does as well. And I'll admit, boy, I love social media. I use it <laughs> professionally. I waste time on it. I, I love everything about it. But I do worry about its influence on kids. And I don't think kids spend as much time as, say, Corey and I did growing up, reading, playing card games, which was interacting with other generations. I think kids are on social media far too much, and it's having a negative impact in many ways. I, I know. I mean, not to change the subject, but when Corey and Eddie his older brother were growing up. One of the things that Phyllis and I did very consciously as parents was limit their TV time. My mother too. They never had TVs in their rooms. And the second, the second thing, just to, to, to put a little vignette, we always ate dinner together and there was never a TV set on. I mean, a kitchen did not have a TV. We had to talk to each other at mealtime and it was torture together every single night. <laughs> I mean, to the point where when Eddie and Corey had friends over and they were, they would, they were there for dinner time, they would sit down and have dinner with us. Scores of times, the kids would say, this is like the Brady bunch. You people really do this every, every night. I grew up that way too. It, you know, the answer is yes. Well, the one thing, the reading and limiting the TV time. But one thing that I could read whatever I wanted, I, I was kind of a weird little kid. And one of my favorite things was um, British murder mysteries. But between all of the interests of, of my parents, there wasn't a book or material that I wasn't allowed to consume anywhere. And it didn't matter whether it was anything, 
anything really. We we did not watch TV very much at all. Um, so I wasn't really exposed to anything on TV that was graphic and inappropriate, but there wasn't printed material that I wasn't allowed to look at or read by any stretch. And I learned to assess it for myself. I don't think it behooves our society to have somebody pre-assess material so you don't have to contemplate it. On the other hand, it, it's it's a national security issue to allow no. Russian disinformation to proliferate on social media. Well, I don't agree with that, Ronnie. I think people need to, if, you know, it's a little bit of learning not to be a sucker in life. Um, and I don't think what it, what you we're really doing is controlling what people think. It'd be like uh, Pathmark or Vons. I, I don't know what the East Coast grocery stores are nowadays, but ShopRite saying, well, we're not going to have the, um, what's that, uh, you know, the, 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 the newspapers, not really newspapers, the, the National Enquirer. We're not going to sell the National Enquirer at our stores because we, we these stories are whatever. I don't know if that's a great analogy, but something along those lines. I think it's that simple. I mean, it's the really slippery slope and where does it end? And it's control of people. And I think part of being a developed adult is the ability to think for yourself. Yeah, it's my right to believe that Michael Jackson and John Kennedy are both still alive and they actually got married and are having babies now. (laughs) I I think you're right. It is. It is. And what would that hurt, really? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I wanted to leave an opportunity for you to pick a topic because we've been just kind of going off on a couple different rabbit trails here. But I wanted to make sure that if you had a topic that you wanted to present or, or a question that you wanted to present, in the realm of politics or religion or culture or just anything. I, I wanted to let you um, pose something as a question or a comment, and then we can discuss. Well, I, I sort of touched on it a little bit. It's a very interesting time in the development of the world. Um, and just like anything, technology, there's a learning curve. I do worry about, I, w- I was a very privileged kid not by the measure that a lot of people would consider privilege, but my, my mother sort of believed in healthy neglect. Um, if it was, the weather was healthy good. neglect. Is that what you said? Yes. That's if great. the weather was good, she booted us out. We weren't allowed much TV time. Like, like you, Ronnie, um, with raising your kids. I'm not sure, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of, brain development and social development that kids, I think our generation got Corey that I'm not sure kids get today. They don't get much unstructured or unsupervised time. And I, I'm concerned about that because a lot of life lessons are formed. And I, I worry about, it seems like kids are plugged in all the time they're not reading. I, I, I'm kind of curious, Ronnie, on your observation of this. If you've noticed it, you being older now, seeing more generations and relative, you raised and now you're looking at your grandchildren. Do you notice any of that at all? Do you share any of those concerns? Absolutely. I mean, my childhood, my father's childhood, my father was born in 1914. We both grew up in Brooklyn. 
our childhoods were very much the kind of childhood you see on our gang comedy. Yeah. Um, I had no structured activities as a kid. I came over except for Hebrew school every uh, four, four afternoons a week. But once Hebrew school let out, until the streetlights went on, I was on my own. My parents yeah. had no idea where I was. And we had a subculture like Lord of the Flies in the schoolyard. Yeah. Uh, as my father did before me. Whereas Phyllis and I raised the kids in the suburbs. And it seems to me that in an urban environment and a rural environment, it's possible to kick your kids. Well, maybe not in an urban anymore because it's not safe. But I was my, my life was a safe life, even a Lord of the Flies safe life. But in suburban environments where everything depends on driving a car, if you don't have structured activities for your kids, I mean, they don't have many options. And I think, I, you know, I, that, that's my observation. Eddie and Corey were involved in structured activities from morning till night. Not necessarily. There was the uh, Saturday afternoons that you would kick me out and say, Cor, I'm going to make a fire and you're going to go out. You're not going to come back. When you do, it's got to be, you know, you got to knock on the door. Don't come in. And that's because we were smoking marijuana around the fireplace. <laughs> Good times. And, and, and your mom and I needed some private time. But yeah. you were in, you know, you were in Little League. You were, all, you, you know, you had music lesson. You had all you had, you Hebrew, had Hebrew school, school yeah. and youth yeah. group and, you know, all this other stuff. Yeah. Do you notice it with your kids, Corey? You know, it's. It's a it's a big question. I, I look because Savannah, gosh, Facebook was just coming into being um, and, and becoming prominent as my kids were becoming, you know, beyond toddlers. So she, she was it, we didn't have as nearly as informed of an answer or a way to 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 answer these questions when she was about 11, 12 years old, when her friends were starting to get cell phones. You know, that that's when uh, smartphones were just coming into being. She's 19. So, okay. gosh, if 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 they were just now hitting their adolescence, I'd probably we'd probably handle it very differently. But uh, for the most part, with each each of the three kids, uh, we tried to wait at least until they were 11 or 12. Yeah. Um, we tried to control how much they were on their phones. But but after a while, it's it's like, you know, holding your hand up to a tidal wave and saying yeah. stop. So, yeah, it, I think we would if we had to do it over again, there's probably a lot of different things that we would do very, very differently. I got very lucky. I, I, I stumbled onto something and I can't take any credit for being smart. I just sort of went with my instincts and it really worked out quite well. The girls were just a little bit older than yours. So I was kind of, that's when Facebook was, was starting and they were, I don't know, but probably 13 more than 11. My younger daughter might've been 12 because the younger ones always get to do everything sooner. I, a lot of my friends for, you know, follow the rules on how old you have to be on Facebook and, you know, the kids all snuck and made accounts behind their parents' yeah. backs. I actually said to the girls, yep, you can, you can have an account. Um, and mostly it was, it was to stay in touch with family and so forth. I, 
but here's the deal. I have to have the password and it's a, it's a learning, you know, we have to be very, and, and they were fortunate in that I saw problems as they were rising in live time and, and we didn't end up having any problems with it. And I think that ended up because of course kids do make accounts and block their parents online and their parents have no idea for years. Um, so I was, I sort of, I was good with that. I, um, I, I was both more of a strict parent in some ways and the, and also more of a easygoing parent in some ways we had a, I, I never really felt the need to explain myself, but I, but I always sort of talked to them about why I was doing what I was doing. And that seemed to get the best response and cooperation from them. And yeah, but it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you're right. Each of the kids ended up creating accounts and, you know, we tried to have the passwords, we tried to monitor, but at the end of the day, they were going to be their own people, you know, in, in person and online. So I, I, I also think looking at their mental and emotional development, that there were definitely negative effects. It becomes Lord of the Flies. You know, yeah. their, their digital life online, their social life on social media, it, it's a bunch of, you know, animals, <laughs> you know, they, um, it's brutal. And I think at least the older two kids, my youngest has had incidents online that, that were really upsetting to him, but I don't, I think that so far from what I could tell that they weren't formative, but my older two kids had, had these whole lives that affected their uh, mental and emotional development to a degree. And it was the Lord of the Flies thing. It really does. I think kids who, who have grown up in this digital age, it, it consumes too much of their real world. I had someone who lives next to a beautiful resort and he could see people pulling into the front of the resort. And he started to notice that, and it was right on the ocean and, and magnificent, that when they got out of the car with this magnificent view, they didn't even stop to actually take it in. The first thing they were doing is turning around backwards and taking a selfie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Smell, and, the, smell the flowers, man. Like, you know, feel the exactly. breeze on your face. I, I worry about that being taking up too much of reality in that generation's life. Well, the, the other thing is that when, when we had conflicts in school, we had to learn, we had to learn, you know, kid versions of diplomacy because, yeah. you know, when you're online and you, you know, especially if it's at a different school, you could be as cruel as you want to be without yeah. facing any consequences. Whereas if I was cruel to a, a, another kid, I risk the possibility of getting punched in the nose, which isn't necessarily <laughs> a bad thing. No, it isn't. I would agree with you. I, it's a personal interaction. And, you know, I have noticed a lot of people under the age of 27 struggle with personal interaction. Mm. And I, I've constantly had, I, you know, I think my girls were very fortunate with 4-H and working with people in, of different generations and, and they're comfortable communicating. And I started to notice that when people would say, oh gosh, it's so nice to talk to your girls. And I, I didn't really realize it because they're just normal kids, but they were better at talking to adults because of that yeah. extra participation. 
Right. Um, and I started to look around. And in fact, it's true. I think kids have a delayed personal develop personal relationship development that's impacting them negatively. Yeah. Well, hopefully the the story isn't over yet with with my kids. We're, you know, we're fighting that battle every day. So we're we're still thank God we're still in the fight. So your kids will be great because they had great grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say they're at least they're good drivers because they had a great initial uh, teacher, but the, the jury's still out on that one. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Jack's a good driver who gets tickets. Right. <laughs> um, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, the, the bit, one of the greatest advantages I had growing up and that I hope you think your kids have is the experience of a strong connected extended family where they get they get loved and nurtured in different ways by different people and there's always somebody to go to yeah it's important you know because i i know that i i have limited capacities um and and, and i i recognize my failures you know even on on some very basic levels with how i parent my children um so i'm grateful that there are days when you know, Lisa has to take the lead. There are days when we've, many days when we've had to rely on you. Um, we just, you know, man, I, I could never do this alone. I just could uh, never no, do this alone. I, I, this is a very un-PC thing to say, but parenting is a two-person job at least. And as Ronnie stated, and then there's so much more. Um, that's probably one of the things I'm saddest about in life is that my parents passed away so young because they were wonderful grandparents to my niece. And they they really just both both my parents missed out and my children missed out. I'm very fortunate. My husband's parents are wonderful grandparents. But it does. I mean, the unconditional love of a grandparent and how much joy each brings the other one. It really softens any mistakes we make with parenting, Corey. Yeah. Um, and and, and there's, there's another dynamic that's missing in American life with the proliferation of uh, of divorce and kids growing up in single parent families and mixed families and all this other stuff. Um, something I got to see as a kid and something Corey and Eddie got to see as a kid is two people um, resolving conflict knowing they're going to be in this forever together. Yeah. Um, and that, unless you can see that and live that day after day after day, I don't think you can develop that skill. Um, some of, I've noticed with some of my kids' friends, they don't have great skills for conflict resolution because I, I don't think they've had many opportunities to witness conflicts being resolved. They blow up and relationships are just severed. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Last question. Where do each of you see things going from here? Oh, Ronnie, well, why don't you answer this one first? Well, oh, as, as a 73 year old, there are two different answers. One is society and one is my life. My life is gold as long as my pensions keep coming every month. And politics and social change doesn't affect our life very much at all. We're, like you said, privileged in the sense that we have tremendous control over 
the people we surround ourselves with, our relationships, our ability to um, to live a certain le- lifestyle. But I, I worry about America. I was reading an article about how empires collapse and the basic theory that this author is putting forward seems to apply to America that as empires grow, they become more complicated and people become more um, specialized. And what should be simple problems to solve suddenly become drowned in bureaucratic morasses. And I worry about that. I worry about how much it costs for kids to go to college. I worry about employment opportunities for my grandchildren. And I worry about the political divide for the very reasons that we've been talking about for an hour and a half now. Yes, I'm, I'm worried about it. I'm, I'm still working on my retirement. I'll be honest with you. I'd like to bolster it a little bit. The effects of the election do affect us pretty directly. We're both self-employed and a stronger economy really changes everything. The Obama years were hard on the Pendleton house. The cost of healthcare was crippling. Then that's a whole nother discussion. Um, So the politics do impact my family a little bit more poignantly right now. Where we're going as a society, I, I do worry about the divisiveness I really feel like the media keeps everybody agitated to their own purpose of people being engaged. Uh, and I, I, I do have concerns about that. I, I feel like the media could, could do more to unite the country and focus on things that we all have in common. We all need Walter Cronkite back. <laughs> you know, honestly, I, it just the, the the media was very different then. It was a it was it was a very very specific job, and and now there's so much more competition again with the development of digital technology. And, and the everybody news is only fifteen minutes. Yeah, right. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but uh, well, no, you know, I am. When I grew up, it was fifteen minutes of local news and fifteen minutes of Walter Cronkite. Yeah, and that was that. I'm not sure. I mean, in some regards, I, I think more information is better, obviously. <laughs> I do really appreciate how much more engaged everyone is. I do sometimes wish that the media was a little bit more focused on reporting what we have in common instead of highlighting what we don't. Share a vignette that, that relates to what you were just talking about. And that'll be my last contribution to this podcast. When I was in guidance counseling school, back in the days when dinosaurs roamed the earth in the late 60s, one of the tricks they taught us was say to a kid who's been misbehaving, why don't you just try to be a hero in your own movie? If, if you make decisions based on being a hero in your own movie, that might be a good thing for you. What I found when I became a counselor 
was that was a terrible thing to say because the heroes in movies back in the 70s were all very violent, sexually promiscuous, immoral people. Um, Sometimes for good causes, but the means always justified the ends. And at that point in time, I was not religious at all. I was I really didn't care whether there was a God or not. It wasn't something that concerned me. But I found that if I said to them, when you have a critical decision to make, think about what God wants you to do. That was a much more positive, healthy way to help a kid learn how to make decisions in life. I had a little variation on that, Ronnie. I used to say to the girls, if you don't want me to know you're doing it, that's your little voice saying you shouldn't be. Right. Yeah, we said something very, very similar. Yeah. Um, if, if you feel like you got to hide it from us, that's probably a warning sign for you. Anyway, this has been a lot of fun, but I got to go. Well, it, <laughs> it has been very fun. And Paige, just know that um, through our bitterest disagreements on Facebook, I'm still crazy about you. Oh, Ronnie, I feel entirely the same. Um, I, I I tend to be pretty flat and to the point. I mean, I actually, a lot of the times when I'm writing things, I'm laughing. And I've said to the girls, I'm always nice. And they're very quick to say, mm, no, you're actually, you don't really come across that way. You can be pretty nasty when you get it, when you get a bug up your ass. But that's, that's a story. I, I go. All righty. Nice talking to you. Yeah. Take care, Corey. I'll talk to you later. All right. Hey, Paige, I I really appreciate you doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything in this that's helpful for you to use? Oh, Oh, yeah, absolutely. We got uh, we got a lot of coverage. But again, the the whole point of the project is is to get to know people on on an individual, unique, dynamic level um, before we get into the politics, because then we can contextualize your points of view you have very different points of view than I do, especially on the character of Donald Trump. But um, to understand who you are as a human being helps me to helps me to understand that better. Um, and then it enriches the conversations about specific issues that more directly affect us. You know, the, what, what Trump is tweeting annoys the shit out of me, but doesn't necessarily affect my daily life, except, except to the extent that I allow it to. But I find that a lot of friends I have, whether it's friends from church who feel strongly about something, you know, that typically is more on the conservative side or my friends in the entertainment industry that often are see things through a the liberal lens. We engage on this one level and then put somebody in a, in a basket um, or, or uh, like in a, in a mold that, a human being doesn't belong in, you know, so to be able to talk to you uh, more extensively uh, to humanize you as opposed to the dehumanizing that often goes on, we're, we're doing, I think we're doing, we're doing good work. You are doing good work. I think I adamantly agree with everything you just said, even being terribly guilty of doing that myself. I actually, I really do. I really can accept if somebody doesn't, agree with me. I really can. 
I get a little wrathy when I don't feel as if I'm being afforded the same courtesy. Right. Somebody can vehemently disagree with me. And I mean, unless they're being cruel, I really don't care. I, I can even accept someone is a jerk and still be happy and move on. Yeah. There are so many more intricacies that weigh into voting for one of two people. And in 2016, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't voting for Trump. I was absolutely voting against Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Um, and then, well, I, you I know. live in California, so the, the the vote is pretty much cast. So I have the uh, luxury of being able to vote, to do a write-in on on conscience. You know, so I, I ended up voting for Johnson in 2016, knowing full well that Hillary was going to win California. Yeah. I don't know how I would have voted in 2016 if I lived in one of the real close swing states. This election cycle, I was much more confident because specifically because it was Biden and it wasn't Bernie or or even Elizabeth Warren. So I, I felt well, see, much more confident in my vote. It's funny. I I am often defending Trump. The truth is I'm really reacting. I'm not I, a lot of times I'm not even sure what I would say about Trump if I wasn't reacting and res, <laughs> responding yeah. in reaction. Trump, I have. I had no expectations of, honestly, I, I wasn't really voting for him quite so much as I was not voting for Hillary. The truth is he's done a lot of things I'm very pleased with. And I finally decided, you know what? I actually don't need to like him. I yeah. think he's worked hard and I do think he's trying to do a good job and he has done a good job on some things and I'm willing to give him another four years. It's that simple, but I, a lot of people can't understand that. You know, I've gotten into the habit of recognizing when someone is forcing me into a position, forcing me to defend a position that I don't hold, you know, yeah. uh, and it often happens <laughs> when Trump comes up. Like, uh, listen, I've known about Trump since the mid eighties guys I graduated high school with were put out of business because of his, his um, business dealings. Your I, father I had, said that. Yeah. I had, um, I had very strong opinions about, the impact he had on New Jersey and New York, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. But, but I also have, I, I look through the, like, you know, this about me, I'm a Christian and I look through the lines of scripture. I can't get past how his, his words, his deeds and his character, um, at least the way I've interpreted them. But if, if I assert something along those lines, uh, my friends from church who are also Christians, I accept the fact that they're Christians. I don't, you know, um, I don't question their, you know, their sincerity and their beliefs, but they'll put, well, what about, you know, Hunter Biden? And uh, what about, um, I don't know, they'll, they'll just oftentimes somebody will throw something my way. And it's like, first of all, I'm not voting for Hunter Biden, <laughs> you know, or yeah. the other day I got into a conversation about um, about uh, abortion. That's a really tough one. You know, yeah. I believe life starts at conception, but I've also you know, I'm not going to defend or, you know, it, it would be simpler to talk about some of the policies that AOC's thrown out there. Like, listen, just because I'm criticizing Trump, it doesn't mean that I'm a big fan of AOC. Um, so I'm not going to sit here and def try to defend policies that I don't agree with. Yeah. You know, so all that to say, I get what you're saying about like, it's hard for you. It's almost like you don't even have space or room to criticize Trump or think about Trump because you're always, oftentimes people are putting you on the defensive. Uh, 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 you know, uh, it's, it's a hard, 
that whole the whole kind of de, de facto default posture we're all in about how we engage with each other forces us into these trenches. And um, I'm just trying to cut through some of that. So you helped me do that today. <laughs> well, I, it, you know, it's a problem and we vilify. We're very quick to make assumptions about people. You know, race obviously jumps up. Um, and I don't, I don't have, I, I, I never even watched Trump. I'm not a big TV person. Yeah. I, other than him being sort of a figure in pop culture, I don't know much about his career or his business dealings. And I don't have the associations you do when I, I and I did vote for him, but as I said, it was for, for Hillary Clinton. One thing that I got very frustrated during the Obama administration with I try to be very specific in my criticisms. I try not to make generalizations um, that, you know, of course we all do. But when I criticize something, I try to be very criticize something specific or specific words or specific act. I got very frustrated during the Obama administration with any criticism of Obama being dismissed as racism. Mm. That made me yeah. tear my hair out. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I think accusing people of racism without real specifics is an ugly thing. And I think it's happening far too much in our culture and society. I mean, to be accused of racism when we were growing up was one of the, the I worst mean, other than being say. a child molester, yeah. you know, there, yeah. there's not much worse. And it seems like... The messaging from the left was any criticism of Obama was because you're a racist. And boy, that 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 drove me away from the left in ways they'll never be able to appreciate. And I'm not alone. A lot of people feel that way and they feel like they can't say what they want to say because they have to preface it with some sort of affirmation of whatever. Yeah. Well, listen, I feel like we could continue this conversation for another couple hours. I do too. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I hope it's, I hope it's useful and you can piece it together. It's already useful. It's useful for my own edification. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it was fun too. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Thanks for doing this and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime real soon. That would be great. Or talk Thanks, in Paige. any case. All righty. Great talking Bye-bye. to you. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.